0: When will I know that I really can't go to the well once more time to decide on? When it's killing me, what will I really see all that I need to look inside? Come to believe that I better not leave before I get my chance to ride. When it's killing me, what do I really need all that I need to look inside? Hey, oh.
1: <laughs> What's the last album they did, man? Uh, a couple of years back. Actually. Oh, really? It's recent, just, huh?
0: Yeah, it was a few years before COVID, I think I saw them at uh, in Montreal.
1: They're all my age, There's man. They're all in show. their fifties now and they still look like kids, man. I don't know what they're doing or what well they're drinking from, but yeah, they're still looking healthy. I've read a few of their books and, uh, yeah they're gonna be young forever until yeah, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> interesting stories from all this cats right so dan welcome to the show man thank you thank you so much it's, for having me it's good to have you we haven't had someone in here talking about what we're about to talk about so it's oh really good. okay cool. well we, we've cool. had deck people talk about it but we had, yeah. we didn't dive into the actual treatment and taking care of right. it but then also we definitely we haven't had anybody talking about window cleaning and maintenance yeah. and all this other stuff right people yeah. just assume it's easy enough they'll take care of themselves yeah or they do the kajiji thing right yeah. so uh it's good to have you welcome thank you thanks for having me let me just share out the these here, it's Dan Givon. Yeah. And it's uh, Shine Windows and The Deck People, two separate companies, but the same company. Yeah. Uh, And websites uh, are shinewindows.ca, thedeckpeople.ca. And the phone number to reach them is 416-949-3874. Email to reach them is info at shinewindows.ca. And you can find them all over social media, IG, The Deck People Toronto. And then Shine Window Cleaners. And then Facebook, you'll find them under the same names. TikTok is under The Deck People. And then you guys got a YouTube channel. Yeah. Under the deck people, right? Yeah. Cool. I got to do a quick shout out to uh, Joel. Joel from Laneway Homes. I'm wearing his tea today. Uh, I always like his tea. Uh, It's comfortable. That's why I like it. So I just want to do a shout out. So unleash your voice on the Construction Life podcast community. Are you passionate about the world of construction, trades, and all things building related? The Construction Life podcast wants to hear from you. Leave us a review. Share your thoughts, insights, and experiences on your favorite podcast channel. Your review fuels our mission to create engaging and informative content for the construction community. Your feedback is a mortar that holds our podcast together. So share your thoughts, rate us, and let the construction community know why The Construction Life is your go-to podcast. Visit our website and check out the over 400 tradespeople and construction professionals listed on our site. Check out www.theconstructionlife.com for additional content, behind-the-scenes exclusives, and valuable resources. Dive deeper into the construction world with articles, guest profiles, and more. Follow us on social at TCL underscore The Construction Life. Subscribe to our video channels on YouTube and Rumble. Check out our link tree and find exclusive discounts for listeners. The link is in the IG bio. Join the conversation on Facebook, the Construction Life community. Right now, Dan, we over to you now. We just start with you. Sounds good. How'd you get into this racket? It's
0: a long story. You're a young um, guy, though. Yeah, I'm 29. So I, uh, I've been doing this since I was 19. So I grew up in Montreal. I was going to business school.
1: I realized that no one actually teaches you how to run a business there. At the business school? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, I... Um, Does anybody speak up, put their hand up and go, we're not learning business here? I don't think they know enough to ask that. Really? Yeah. Okay. But basically what
0: happened was um I was never I was okay in school but I I hated it. I was I have a lot of ADHD. I couldn't sit still. Um from a very young age I knew like school was was death. I just I never looked forward to going to school. And um I started taking classes my first couple of weeks of university. And I realized that half of my teachers had never actually worked a real job in a business. They were just reading textbooks and teaching it. And um,
1: So it's kind of like walking into Home Depot.
0: Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Except at Home Depot, you know what you're getting. And at business school, you kind of think that there's a fair... Did they
1: admit to this fault?
0: Uh, I mean, it's interesting because it's not like a some of the teachers there the school system is broken basically what happens when you get to university is that in order to be a tenured professor to the point where they can't let you go you and you're there full time permanently you have to have a certain number of degrees um, and certifications but anyone who's actually like run a business and has a lot of experience probably didn't spend the last 15 years building up those degrees yeah so i had a few professors who are amazing who had Sold companies had big exits that were teaching and I loved those classes because you could tell they were really like in it Um, but I'll never forget I went to one class one day and I think it was like a business strategy class And I saw my teacher was wearing a rolex and so I I thought to myself man this guy probably done something interesting if if he's Rocking a rolex. So I go up to him after class. Hey, I was just wondering like what were you doing before you were teaching? Um, and he goes I was uh, I was I was studying And I was teaching somewhere else. And I said, okay, but like before that, what were you doing? And he goes, oh, I've I've never actually like run a company before or worked in a business. And then I kind of walked away and I was scratching my head. And I'm like, my prof who's been, is is on, he's coming up on his three-year contract where they're going to tell him he has to leave the school because he doesn't have that background, Okay, who was amazing, my favorite teacher ever. And now I have another prof here who has never actually done anything in terms of what he's teaching me, and he's going to be here for life. And uh, that was when I kind of realized something was broken there. Sounds political. Sounds like a that's, politician. That's education, right? Right. That's, that's the system is very uh, It's structured to stay the way that it's been. It's very difficult to change. And uh, I think eventually one day, I mean, even now, like, People are starting to do online courses and they're starting to realize. I was just going to
1: say, like digital landscape right now, isn't that changing? Isn't it a, the direct competition to formal yeah. education?
0: Yeah, like I, I'm i not like against school, but I'm, oh, yeah. I'm a very big advocate for education. Yeah, But I don't really like the way the education system is set up now. And my, if, if someone asked me what they think they should do when they're about to go to school, my advice would be, you know, just make sure you're doing something. I love that I went to school because I had a lot of fun. I was partying. I was making friends. Uh, I didn't do a lot of studying while I was there. Um, but, you know, ironically enough, had I not gone to business school, I wouldn't have been in the position that I was in to go down the path that I'm on now with my career. So. But did
1: you learn enough skills at the school to start your business?
0: Um, no. So what happened was I, I was about a month into school. And I'm sitting in economics class and someone passed me a clipboard to sign. And it just said, like, do you want to make $15,000 and learn to run a business? And obviously I put my name down. And two weeks later I get a call from some, uh, like, phone service in, from an Indian woman who I can barely understand. And she's going, hey, you wrote your name on a clipboard. Do you want to attend a meeting? And I'm like, what? Do well, you want to sell me something? She's like, no, 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 you wrote your name down. I said, oh, okay, Telemarketing. sure. Telemarketing. Sounded like that. So okay. I, so she's like, there's a meeting at your school next week to go and, and figure out like what this program is and if you want to apply. And uh, and I show up and in my mind, I'm going, I'm paying all this tuition to learn how to run a business and I'm not going to learn it that here. So if someone tells me that I could even learn it for free, forget paying me. I'll do whatever I need to do. And it ended up being student painters And so this guy at the front of the classroom starts talking and he's telling us that the average student makes about 15 grand in a summer. And he kind of walks you through the season, how, um, you know, throughout the winter, you're going to go knocking on doors and you're going to draw up business. And then in the summer, you're going to produce these jobs and you're effectively going to be running your own franchise without any buy-in. And to me, It was kind of like I had no idea what was going to happen here. I'd never heard of student painters before. There was not really anything going on in social media at the time. Um, But I brought two of my best friends with me to come to this info session. And we walk out of the session, and I'm lit up. I'm like, so what do you guys think? And they both look at me like I'm insane. About
1: joining student painters or about starting your own thing?
0: Uh, About joining student painters. Okay, And so they go, are you insane? We're not going to paint houses. We don't know how to paint. This is, this is this is a scam. There's no way we're doing this. And I was like, I think you guys are nuts. I think this is a good opportunity. Um, and so I went to the interviews and the sessions, and I started to learn more about the program. And I came home one day. I said, hey, to my parents, I said, I think I'm going to run a painting business. And they said, my dad, my dad is an immigrant entrepreneur, really can build anything with his hands. Uh, and he looks at me, he goes, Dan, you, you wake up at 11 o'clock, in the morning <laughs> you, there's no way you're, you're you i'm always doing stuff outside you never want to join you're going to paint houses i said you know no, no, this is different i'm going to run a business <laughs> and
1: he goes you figure you get the people to do the work but you'll run the business
0: well that's the the kind of the pitch is you need to learn how to paint because you can't own a mcdonald's and not know how to make a burger but at the same time you can't scale and and you, you got to work on the business not in it yeah so that was the pitch and so i signed up i got in and uh in my first year I had no fucking clue what i was doing
1: and Did you start in the winter months so you started yeah another business so you
0: start you sign up um i think we start in january they bring you to like a training in ottawa or it's just this conference room at a hotel they give you all of like it's a three-day crash course over the weekend on all the a to z about running a business and the nice thing is is there are they're a established company who's been doing this
1: all over Canada. So You're not paying a dime here at this point.
0: No, I think just your I, time. I might have given a deposit on like a duffel bag and some equipment, but basically just my time. Okay. And um and so you go and and they've got a playbook and they're basically telling you, here's the playbook. Um, if you follow the playbook, the average student will run a business that's like sixty grand and make fifteen K. Um, and obviously like a lot of people don't get this, but you're not guaranteed anything because if you don't work of course then you make less of if course. you work a lot more you beat the average yeah and my whole life since i was probably like 5 years old i um i've always just been like i'm going to go and build something i want to run a business i want to do something something crazy so this was like my chip on my shoulder to prove myself that i could i could make something of myself
1: but didn't know anything about painting
0: didn't know anything about painting had never run a business before um was really never never had a real job my actually my i had one job i was making uh sandwiches at basically montreal has a really great spot it's like subway but better and it's called dagwoods okay um so i was making sandwiches at dagwoods um and i was like a complete i, I don't want to say i was a complete degenerate but i was like i was smoking weed every day i was sleeping in i didn't really have anything to like take seriously in yeah, my like life. A
1: typical 20 something yeah all.
0: i was 19 <laughs> actually yeah at
1: the young okay two questions yeah what'd you pay for school it's cheap in quebec i think it was like 2k a semester so how much did you pay in total did you do the whole run
0: yeah i ended up finishing so what was the total cost probably did four years times four k i probably spent like 20 grand with books and everything on the whole thing and you graduated that yeah honestly after the second year i thought about dropping out because the business thing was going so well um and maybe it was just me wanting to like finish what I started or maybe it was having uh, Jewish parents that were like, you know, you finish school. We don't care what you do. Finish school. Yeah. Um, and I was living with them at the time for half, half, half the time I was in school, too. So it was just it was kind of like a why not finish type of thing. And I think it was good that I did because it gave me structure. I think I would have probably
1: gone off the rails if I had too much free time. And then I, I guess the other thing is, did you ever find out what the guy with the Rolex was doing? Uh, like now. Well, what or? did he do to get
0: a Rolex? Oh, I th- I think he was just like a tenured professor that was making good money. And yeah, I mean, y- at the end of the day, you don't really need to make a lot of money to wear a Rolex. You can, you can be making minimum wage and go get
1: one. Doesn't just means you're not making the best. You use ones right? or whatever, but yeah. Just, yeah. But I mean, he was wearing it, flaunting it for a reason, right? Yeah. Call your attention.
0: I never thought about it again. Honestly, I was sitting at the front of the class the first day. And then I met him, and then after we had that conversation, I just completely ignored the class. After that, like I would go to these class, I would I stopped going to his class because I just realized it was a joke. Like, wh- how is this guy going to teach me? I'm better off spending my time running my business or reading books or doing. anything. Did you get
1: a better education going to the student painters seminars? Yeah, hundred percent about business. Yeah, yeah, it really, yeah, life.
0: it absolutely changed my life. Wow. Um, so it wasn't even the seminars. It was more like the seminars are kind of like. They get they get you started. But you don't you can't do anything from the seminars. You learn by doing. Yeah. Um and they only really have like two or three seminars a year. What they do after is they assign you a, a coach who basically has done what you've done before and they're your manager, their district manager. And they kinda are the per you have a weekly meeting with them and they answer all your questions. They're there to guide you. And so day one starts, uh it's like mid January, and they teach us to knock on doors in the middle of a snowstorm. So I'm, and we're in Montreal, right? So it's no, and I'm an Anglophone. So I'm speaking like broken French, trying to sell door to door painting services that I've never done. So I don't speak the language well. Now I'm a lot better, but I I didn't speak the language well. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know sales. Um,
1: You didn't know painting.
0: No painting. And uh, it was just like sheer force. Just keep knocking on doors, keep getting results. And that was where I kind of, like, I got it. It was a, a formula where it was like, as long as you don't give up, you will sell something. You just have it's just a,
1: a it just depends how long you're willing to go out yeah, for. Yeah, knock on one door and they say no, that's exactly. no. Knock on 100 yeah. doors. Yeah. 10 might say yes. That's
0: it. And so day 1, I was like really hungry to prove myself and I met with my manager who uh, who had our like our launch meeting with us. So she was basically going to spend 3 hours walking me through what the rest of my year was going to look like and then I was going to go execute. And I had so many questions, not just like good questions, but I had dumb questions. I asked her to repeat herself a hundred times that she called her partner and she said, I don't think I can work with this guy. Like, I I think, I don't think, I think we made a mistake in hiring him. Um, He wasn't right for the... It was me. She was. She thought I might not be right for the role. So okay. she almost passed me off to another manager because I was just, it took me so long to grasp the basics that other people would just get inherently. But you
1: were asking these questions just to verify and see what other opportunities come out of this one idea that they're presenting to you. That's it. Like she would say, okay,
0: so then we're going to go knock on doors. And I would ask all these cockamamie questions about knocking on doors that no one else was asking and a three hour meeting turned into a five hour meeting. Like what?
1: What kind of questions? I'm curious.
0: Honestly, I don't even remember, but I just know that any time they gave me anything to do, I struggled with it tremendously. They would You struggle with it or you try to dissect it? Um I think I don't I like I like to know the what the confines are that I'm working in, in the sense that I'm not the best when you're like, Dan just go and uh I don't know, build me this like whatever. Uh, IKEA thing, but if you tell me here's a set of instructions, like I'll figure it out. And so they would send me door knocking and or do sales, and they would give me like a formula to do estimates. So they'd be measure the walls and you know write up the estimate. So I go and I do my first estimate. I call her. I go, I'm freaking out. I, I don't know. I don't understand this estimate sheet. I I, I think I overquoted it. I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And so it was like that with everything I did at paint training i was the worst painter <laughs> at sales i was the worst salesperson and um ironically enough I, I actually ended up being the top or second from the top rookie in canada that year and about halfway into the season once production started that was where i kind of flipped
1: this show is brought to you by Payne's window manufacturing window shopping revolutionized seeking top tier windows look no further Payne's Window Manufacturing is the ultimate choice for custom builders, contractors, and homeowners. Visit www.payne's.com now to experience the pinnacle of quality and customization. Get your instant custom quote today. Elevate excellence with us, plus enjoy nationwide shipping across Canada and the US. And so when you once you actually got the contracts yeah. and you got into the homes, yeah. Your sales started exceeding other people's.
0: Yeah, cuz what happened was I was I would just outwork everyone and I didn't realize that no one else was putting in this work at the time, but when they kind of reverse engineer your, your goal at the beginning of the year, they go, how much, let's say you're going to run an $80,000 business. Your goal is to make 20 grand this summer. Um, Here's what you need to do. If you want to make this much money, you got to knock on this many doors, this many hours, this many weeks. And so she told me, I said, how much, how many hours of door knocking do I need to do to win? And she said, if you do at least uh, 20 hours of door knocking every week, then you'll hit the average. And so in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm just not going to stop. I can do 30, 40 hours. So what are you do? telling
1: yourself? Like, I'll do eight hours today, eight yeah, hours. So
0: every day I'd finish school and I'd come home from school and I'd, you know, it's four o'clock and I'd, I'd eat, I'd throw my stuff down. I'd be like, all right, 5.30, I'm going to go knock on doors for three hours. So i go from 5.30 to 8.30 or nine o'clock every night and on the weekends, I would do 10 hours Saturday, 10 hours Sunday, and first meeting, I come in, and she's like, all right, how many leads do you have, and I, this, everything was on paper, I pull out, like, six sheets of paper, she goes, how the hell did you get, like, 30 leads, and I go, oh, I just knocked on doors for, like, 40 hours, and she said, like, after school, I go, yeah, every day, I would just go after school, and she goes, and Saturday and Sunday, I said, yeah, And, uh, and then I hired like a girlfriend of mine at the time and uh, another friend of mine and they quit very quickly. And then
1: it was just, they were doing the same thing, knocking on doors, just to sample. Yeah.
0: So I just told them, I was like every estimate that you set up for me, I'll give you 20 bucks. Um, And then, you know, your, your equity with your friends doesn't last very long. So you got to, you got to hire other students and now it's like the blind leading the blind. And uh, once summer hit production was a mess because I didn't even know how to use a ladder. I'd never been on a ladder in my life. Um, but I understood the business side of it really, really well. I understood that I needed people. I understood that I couldn't be the one relied on to do the work or it wouldn't scale. I understood that clients needed like satisfaction. You couldn't just go and do whatever the hell you wanted. And, um, you know, by the end of the season, I ended up running a $100,000 business. So that was in tandem for the f- while I was in school. I was like doing this as almost a side thing. On the side. But then I just stopped paying attention in class because I, I got so much value from you know answering Indeed ads and and uh, writing up contracts and um, just like doing all of my business work while I was in school on my laptop, and uh, and that was I made I think I made like thirty grand that summer and you know for a kid living at his parents' house. This, I'm how rich. Long, you know? How far
1: back is this? now? We this thought? is ten years ago. Ten years ago.
0: Yeah. So I was nineteen, and uh, and I stopped. I probably like a month in. I think I had, or two months that I had signed my first couple contracts and I, I booked like, I booked like $6,000 in a weekend. And I just looked at the contracts and I was like, this is wild. Like if I go out and knock, I started to understand the value of my time. And I was like, if I sleep in for four hours or I smoke weed and I'm not interested in working, like I'm basically losing six grand. And after that day, I, like I almost never smoked weed again because I was just the high I got from going and getting results for my business was so much better than the high I got from partying and hanging out and I still partied a lot after but it wasn't it I I quit my job immediately and 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 that was it and I stayed with the company for four years and then and then I started this
1: so what happened to the other two friends that came with you to the uh, the the initial seminar and they said forget this
0: uh i'm still friends with them now
1: what are they up to they finished school as well
0: yeah they finished school both of them have like really solid safe jobs and careers in corporate yeah data analytics one's working for a sports analytics team another one is doing marketing um but you know when i was are you you
1: doing better than them financially i'm curious i'm just
0: yeah yeah okay i would definitely um but I would say like up until that point, I, I thought everyone was like me. Like I would, I was always hungry to go and and make money and and do things. And we were like 16 and my best friend, my neighbor at the time, I I used to bug him. I'd be like, let's go, let's go knock on doors and and shovel people's driveways. And he did it once with me we made like, you know, 50 bucks and I was hooked. I, I wanted to do it every day with him. And every time I would ask him, he'd be like, oh, I can't, I have this or I don't feel like it or. And it didn't even click with me then. I was like almost oblivious to it. I was, I didn't see it. But then once I started doing student painters and all my friends thought I was crazy and I stopped hanging out with them and I was just working all the time and I was working weekends and nights. And I realized that like most people aren't wired like that. Like they nope. don't want to go and grind. They, they just want to, you know, have their nine to five. They want to go home and, and that's fine. Um, but I made the mistake of, of thinking that I, I was the same as everyone else and really i was the, the odd man out and that was where i started to realize
1: it so how much did it grow you were there for four years yeah so so each year it grew how much like did it double itself
0: yeah so year one i did a hundred grand and then and year, that was
1: bo- mostly painting in the summer months it was only. all painting yeah in Just summer summer months so uh
0: may to uh, to like september
1: first year you're in your second year of school
0: first year of school first year of school so yeah. first
1: year of painting you're in your first year of school yeah so yeah. basically your school education years were also your painting business yeah. years. Yeah, that was it. Interesting.
0: Yeah, so it, So first year we did 100. Second year I did like 180. Um, and that was where I really learned what balance was because in year one, I, I, was, I was working 120 hours a week. Like I was getting home at, you know, nine o'clock from knocking on doors. And then I'd have all this like admin to do i'd have to enter my leads on my excel sheet and so i'd stay up until 10 30 doing that and then i'd shower and then all of a sudden it's eleven thirty, 30 and I, some days i'd like wake up on my desk mm. i just fell asleep my desk, and then the next day i'd have to be up at 6 30 in the morning 7 a.m to go and start my jobs and so year two i was like i could do better because now i i know what i'm doing and then i hit a breaking point where i just realized like it's just a number, you know. What I was going for two hundred grand that second year, and so you reached a hundred the
1: first. Yeah, you're going up to two hundred. Yeah, the and you could do better, but you're already working one twenty hours per That's week, it. and then you're all night long. You're doing all the data stuff.
0: Yeah, but now it's smarter, right? So you have an efficiency. Yeah, and um, and it was like July, August. I was almost at the end of the year, and I was talking to my coach about whether or not like. I'm going to hit my goal, be under it or pass it, and I just looked at her and I said, "Honestly, this is silly. Like uh, this whole thing was all the past year and two years has been about proving to myself that like I could do this and that I was good enough and I realized that I've I've answered that question and whether I hit 200 or 220 or 180 is I'm not going to feel any different about myself and I'm just going to be a slave for the last month and I'd rather not." And so I I capped it at 180. I finished there. Uh, second year third year third year I came back and they made me like a mini manager a mini coach so I was running my own business on like a smaller business and I was coaching uh, six guys to do their own painting businesses and I think we did like I think I had done like 150k myself and
1: then Plus the coaching.
0: Plus like maybe 500K or, or 350K between the five or six of them. And then the final year was where everything changed for me because they had had someone try, like test out the window cleaning model in Ontario, but it wasn't that successful. It was like one person who did it and they wanted to bring it into Quebec and they needed someone to kind of pioneer it. And so they asked me if I wanted to do that. And this really excited me because I knew that I would have a long way to go to become like the best coach in painting. But if I could go from nothing to uh, building out like a window cleaning franchise for them, um, like that that would be something worth doing. That's a story. Yeah. And that excited me. So I basically they didn't want to give me the uh, like the top students. So they said, you're going to go to what in Quebec we have Sejap. So it's like between high school and university, we finish at grade 11 instead of grade 12. And then you have two years of of college before you have university. So they sent me to all of the colleges to go and recruit people because they wanted to keep all the university students for painting. They didn't want to risk the The relationship or the. Yeah. And the more mature students who are potentially like older and more capable. It was kind of like if you're going to do this, like do it with the younger people because they figured window cleaning was an easier business model to run is it it, yeah in a lot of ways it is um and so what i didn't know what no one had thought of was that in university everyone's 18 plus so nobody really cares that you're going soliciting when you go to colleges and you half the students are 18 but half of them are are 17 and so there's really really strict guidelines where the school doesn't want anyone soliciting to the students because they're minors
1: okay so
0: I would go class to class handing out these clipboards and then one by one, the schools would start to like post notices and, and try to and like, security would be looking for me to try and kick me out. And I got to a point where I was doing these meetings on a park bench with students that had filled out the clipboard because I couldn't be in the school. And I was, and I was in a Starbucks and um, I had like 12 people. I took a whole table um, and the owner of the company was like, just spend whatever you need to, to like get them to let you stay. And uh, and one of the baristas came over. They're like, "You can't be doing meetings here, or you can't reserve the table." And I'm like, "Can I just give you like 200 bucks a day to to have the table?" And she's like, "Well, you have to buy stuff." And I go,
1: "That's about 200 bucks worth of stuff." I'm
0: like, "Okay, can you give me like 12 coconut waters?" <laughs> and so yeah, and so it was just this like weird situation where i'm this, you know, 21-year-old kid in the middle of a Starbucks occupying half the space.
1: Complete strangers.
0: Complete str- and all these students are walking in, everybody else in the Starbucks is like, who's the we can't really kick him out because like he's not breaking any rules. So anyway, and you're so, pitching them. I'm pitching. I'm going through. I'm like, you know, there's 12 people at the table and I'm starting to tell them about why they should join this company and join my team. And uh, and and so i ended up getting about I think it was like nine or nine or 10 people to run window cleaning businesses under me. And so I'm in school, I'm running my own painting. You're in your third year of school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm running my own. uh, No, I think this was my, my fourth year. year? Yeah. So I'm running my own painting, window cleaning business. Now That ended up doing, I think like 200 K that year. And then I have six students under me who (laughs) most have never even had a job. And I'm training teaching them to run window cleaning businesses. And the most amazing part of that year was that I I saw something that I think most people on the painting side missed, which was that it had all of the efficiencies of a trade business, but with none of the inefficiencies of running uh, painting. And so what I mean by that, because you asked me which one was better, um, when you're trying to scale a business, you're really looking for one of the the most important things is like your ability to repeat revenue. Yep. And so it was so demoralizing that every year I would finish painting, I'd have all have a couple hundred clients and then I'd call every client the following year and go, hey, do you have any more work for me? And they'd go, no, you've nope. painted everything. Yep. With windows, people need it once, sometimes twice a year. And so that was when I said, this is amazing because I can actually build and compound my client list and there's a lot less liability for mistakes um, you can't spill paint on someone's couch, right? You're just cleaning windows. Worst case, if the window's not clean, you just come back and you clean it again. You yeah. don't have to scrape it and strip it all off. Yeah. Um, and it was also a lot easier to train. I can take someone who knows nothing about painting and make them a good painter in six months. But if you want someone to be like a world-class painter, you need a couple years under your yeah. belt. And so I said, this is a really scalable model. And I started going to the CEO with all these things I wanted to change in the business. And uh, I think they wanted to focus more on painting and it's their company, right? So I'm just like a 24 year old kid who's trying to tell them how to do things. And, uh, we didn't really see to eye to eye on some of those things. And that was when I hit a point where I realized that I was doing the teaching and up until then I had always stayed cause I was learning so much and my friends were like, why don't you go and start your own thing? And I kept staying because I knew that there were people smarter than me there that,
1: could keep teaching me you still want to learn lessons
0: yeah and i knew that whatever money i would have made by going out on my own if i made an extra 50k that year it would be nothing in comparison to the knowledge that i would gain that would eventually make me millions you know later in, in life
1: rules compliance regulations these are super critical things we use tools that require high safety standards we have to meet compliance and regulations at all times not just for governmental issues But actually, if we don't, we're risking our own employees. Every tool requires a different kind of training and understanding of how to operate it safely. Every rule needs to be fully understood, who's qualified to do certain jobs and who's not. All these are important things we managers must take care of to keep safety high at all times. Now, getting it done is way harder than talking about it. But luckily, there's a platform I found that can help out with everything I just mentioned. A great software called Connect Team which has training and quizzes that you can build in any way you'd like to make sure your employees always know how to handle a certain tools. You can see who's done a certain course of quiz who didn't complete it and can't work with a certain tool until they do. You also have the ability for an update. If there's a new regulation, you need everybody to be aware of ASAP and also an easy overview screen to see who saw it. Plus, Their schedule allows you to add limitations for certain jobs, so if one of your employees is not qualified to do a certain job, the system will automatically notify you about it. The platform offers a lot more, such as easy access to playbooks or hazard reports. Just check them out for yourself. Connect Team has a free plan and a 14-day free trial. Try them today by checking out the link in the show notes.
0: And so on my fourth year, I left and I said, I know I want to go start another business and I just graduated, but... I don't know what it is yet. I think it, I'll probably do window cleaning, um, but I need a break because I hadn't done anything for four years. And I booked a one-way ticket to South America, and I said I'll just I'll come back when I either run out of money or I get bored. And um, and so yeah, and then I went. So how long were you away for? So I was away for like three and a half months. Okay. And halfway into my trip, my uh, border money ended first. Which one was? Bored. 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 It's okay. a, it was a lot cheaper than I thought. I think I had spent like eight grand or something it was it was amazing um i was staying at hostels i was just backpacking um and about halfway into my trip my my old boss um her and i had become very very close friends and she was the one who taught me everything i knew about you know student painting she was my coach and she called me up and she said hey uh what do you think about moving to toronto to start that window cleaning company together and I'm in the Galapagos Islands on a beach, <laughs> taking this, I go, Toronto, why am I going to go to Toronto? And she goes, well, there's, uh, there's better weather, there's lower taxes, and there's no French. And I said, you know, worst case, this will be a really great story, so why not? So, um, And that was eight years ago? Seven? That was, I think, six, six years ago? Yeah, six years ago. Okay. And so I called my mom. I said, Mom, I, I know you miss me, and I haven't seen you in a few months, but uh, I'm leaving after I come home. She goes, are you leaving? You just left. I you said,
1: just left. You I just said, went I'm, away.
0: Yeah, I said, I'm, I'm moving to Toronto.
1: Never worked in Toronto? No. So you come to Toronto.
0: I'd, like, been to Toronto once to visit, like, a couple times to visit family and friends. I knew about Toronto from student paintings all over Canada. So I had friends, kind of, um, but every all my friends they were like, "Why would you move to Toronto?" and uh, and no one really got it. And my vision for it was that, firstly, other than you know those practical reasons, I really just wanted to like put my blinders on, and not have any distractions. I didn't want to be invited by friends to go out to clubs. I didn't want to. I just wanted to be in a place where I was kind of isolated, and I can just go and like build a. See company where the here. opportunity is. So we moved here. Uh, together six years ago. We ha- we both, like, we took over a friend's property management business. We were running an Airbnb business, uh, which is a whole other story. And then we realized, and then COVID hit, that business shut down. We were working in tech sales, too, for a software company. And every time we went and did stuff, it just, it came back to that window cleaning thing where we were like, I, I think, it just kept reinforcing, like, the window did, Were you working business. on
1: the window cleaning idea while this was going on, or so, were you just postponing it
0: so halfway into my trip she came to visit me in colombia uh for a week and we sat in a broken down internet cafe and kind of like wrote out the business plan um but that was really it like there was we thought we were going to be a franchise and just like sell franchises and then we realized we didn't want to do that we said fuck it like we'll just run our own thing and we had one friend of ours who really wanted to do it with us in montreal and we said why don't you just run your own franchise there and we'll coach you and um and so yeah we we learned a lot by running those other businesses and having those other jobs that we were able to kind of like translate and take away into like business acumen Mm -hmm. um but eventually january hit five years ago and we said that's we're gonna do this now and then i just started knocking on doors and it was the same story same
1: thing all over again
0: yeah so i moved here with her And we, we were best friends. And like right before we started the business together, we started dating. And so with rent in Toronto, it was, it didn't make any sense to rent two apartments knowing we were going to spend every day together running the business and we were dating. So we said (laughs) the day we started dating was the day we moved in together and started the business together.
1: Um, So two businesses.
0: At the time, yeah, we were running both together and then um and now we're married and uh and yeah and the rest is history
1: and so now is it a franchise no it's a one you got one business going on
0: no so we in the first year we um we did pretty well a lot better than we ever thought we were going to do and we had our franchise in montreal and in the second year i called up my friend pat who was running the franchise and i said uh
1: this so was the shine in Montreal. Yeah. And okay. So he
0: was running his own thing. And I said, I think, I think it'd be great if you left your, your franchise and you moved here to work with us. I think we could build it bigger. I think we'd have more fun. Um, I think in the long run, you'll make a lot more money building this from the ground up with us than you will on your own in Montreal. And he had at a point where he realized he didn't want to be that guy who was, you know, handling everything and uh, and he trusted me, and I kind of brokered a deal with him and another friend to sell his business to him in Montreal. He moved here. I called up my other best friend in Montreal, and I said, if you come and move here, and you work with me, I don't know how, but if you, basically, if you give me your soul, I will change your life, and they both, uh, they both trusted and believed in me, and they moved here, and now the four of us run the company together. We're in our fifth year, and I would say by... I don't have like concrete numbers on it, but from my guesstimate by the end of next year, we'll probably be the biggest window cleaning company in Toronto, probably Ontario.
1: So what was, because you guys are doing window cleaning and eavesdrop cleaning as well too, since you got the ladders up there yep. already, right? Yep. Like I remember back in the day when I got started, I was always being bombarded by, uh, what was it like white, white shark? Yeah white shark. Yeah, yeah, white shark. Right. So I just, I didn't pay much attention to them. Yeah. Right. But they didn't do anything as far as I know what you did so obviously you were doing something different very different business model yeah Yeah. i
0: I know um i know the owner of white shark he's a really nice guy um but you know he's been in the game for like 30 years and i think the way that i kind of classify the i think the trade industry in general is that most people are stuck between a local guy who's not reliable and a big company who doesn't care yep and especially in toronto with the price of housing, what it is, you can't really live here unless you've got a good job and your time is worth something. And so that creates a very good melting pot for homeowners who are just willing to pay and want to pay a premium to just have something done with zero headaches. And when I looked around at the industry, I realized that pretty much every company in window cleaning and most trades, um, there's a lot of guys who are either um, just fly by night and not doing great work. There's very, very few who do amazing work, but they're completely tapped out because they don't know how to run the business side of it. And so once they hit a point where if they're good, they're in demand. And if they're demand, like they're done, they can't go and hire people and replicate that. And I said, wouldn't it be wild? We, we could be wildly successful if we figure out how to systemize and scale a model where it's like you're getting that premium service with the owner on every job even if the company is 50 people large. Mm -hmm. And from day one, it was just always about quality. It was, we just wanted to be the best. Most companies, they just do the glass and they leave. We would, you know, scrub the tracks and vacuum them out and put a towel down and make sure we actually showed up on time and call people if we're running late. Um, And just make sure like that communication was there and basically do what you would expect from every contractor in the world, but what most don't do. Yeah, And from there it was just about be the best be the best be the best and you know we figured it would just grow with that
1: so how many like how many leads do you you get on an annual basis i guess it's just growing every year as well but it's also repeat customers as well too right
0: yeah so we're probably in terms of leads at peak summer we're probably getting like
1: 30 leads a day um so you got somebody on the team that's still door knocking starting from scratch um yeah so in the winter.
0: We, we build out our, like, we don't like, I don't like laying people off because if I've spent a whole year building someone up and training them, like it's, there's value. There's a lot of value. Also, I want to have like a strong culture. I want guys to be there for the long run. Uh, I want them to see that there's opportunity to move up in the business because I, we're growing so fast. I need people. So I just tell every single worker, if you want to work in the winter and you don't want to take three months off, come door knock with us. And even if they're not the best, it ends up breaking even in the long run because they're handing out flyers and learning and staying. And so we probably have like this year, we'll probably have like 10, 15 people door knocking all winter. And then once summer hits, we go back into production mode and we pretty much stop door knocking more or less. And then, you know, Google has become a massive driver of leads. So this was the first year just in the I think like October, I started running ads, but up until October, we, everything was organic. We'd never run ads before.
1: And you were getting, so how big is the team now? Like it's still just one business, right? You don't have franchises yeah. all over the place. No. So we're, and about, what's your area as well, too? Like how far?
0: Well, we, we're based in t- like downtown Toronto. I would say like 80% of our jobs are core Toronto. And then, you know, you've got, we, we probably go in the triangle of like Mississauga, North York, garborough but mostly it's like beaches etobicoke north york yeah and then you got the odd client who's like hey i have a cottage i need a painted three hours out i love you guys can you just like send your team up there and yeah um but yeah right now we're about at peak season this year we were probably about 40 people um so it was the four of us kind of running the ship And then we just brought up we promoted two of the guys to be like junior managers this year. And then we've got like a couple office and back end people and then the rest are all like laborers. But we're probably adding about like 10 people or so a year at this point.
1: Hmm. Good for you. Thank you. So, okay, that's the window business, right? Yeah. And you didn't, again, didn't know anything about the window business, but you knew how to just take care of people and what they were looking for.
0: Yeah, like I knew only what I knew from student painting, which was basically nothing because nobody even knew what they were doing there. So (laughs) it was YouTube videos. Exactly. But as you go, you figure things out. Like you realize, hey, um, you know, I don't... uh, I can't do, I can't clean a window from this angle. And you start Googling, you find out, oh, there's this squeegee that exists that's better. Why can't I get the dirt out of the tracks? Oh, I should go buy a portable vacuum. And you start to just invest more and more into equipment and better things and technique. Um, And at the time we were doing painting, exterior painting only because we just- So
1: you were still offering a painting service.
0: Yeah, so it was just called Shine Windows and we would do, you know, windows, gutters, power washing, uh, outdoor painting and staining. And a year into the, to, to that, um, a lot of the decks we were doing were peeling because it's like impossible to stay in a deck without it peeling. Yeah. And no matter how good of a job I did, you get clients who call back, they go, I just paid you two grand. Like my deck's peeling. Yep. And I had to choose between doing what would be good for the brand versus, you know, I could stand on a technicality and say, I can't guarantee your deck cause it's a floor. Um, but I would just go and fix it. And it was just a big headache. And by that time I had gotten a client who had an amazing carpenter who had just built him in this deck that he wanted me to restain. He goes, I have this product I want you to use. And I said, Yeah, everybody has a product they want me to use. And I'm sure it's garbage. He goes, No, 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 it's amazing. I go, Okay, I'm gonna wash it and sand it. He goes, No, don't sand it. Just clean it and put it on. I go, What are you talking about? He goes, It soaks into the wood, it doesn't peel. And so I find out it's uh, imported from Australia. It's a, it's a synthetic oil that basically just hydrates what the you, wood from inside. You're talking about what, q Yeah. Yeah. And so um, this was a game changer. Mm-hmm. And I said, we can't be the window guys who do decks. Because there's actually no one else who does decks in the city. There's a lot of people that do decks, but they don't specialize.
1: I know one guy that just does the pre-treating before john the, yeah yeah John Wick, right? the right? yeah so he knows everything about q tech and he's yeah. he's educated me quite a bit right So
0: he's the only person i've ever met who knew more about me than staining yeah in, in staining and so i started googling before i met before i found out about q tech i started googling um uh deck staining toronto and I was Googling bridal path painting. I was calling the most expensive high-end painters I could find. I said, what do you do for deck staining? They'd there's go, nobody. there's nothing you can do. It's going to peel. You know, just tell your clients it is what it is. And so I said, we need, we need to look like we know as much as we know. And so that was when I split up the brand and I, I decided to have specialized teams. Instead of having window guys doing everything, it would be start in windows and then you progress. And then eventually you can stain decks if you're really good. Yeah. And then we ha- created the deck people. uh, But that wasn't
1: the right model. What do you mean? Like to convert window guys into deck guys, or was that the right model?
0: It it was, because what happened was windows are are a lot easier. So I was able to kind of vet the right guys through windows and see who was good, who was detail-oriented, who was reliable. And then the best guys, I would take them and say, hey, it's July now, we're getting into deck season. Um, On any day that's sunny, you're going to start staining decks. And then I would teach them how to do that. And then they would kind of do outdoor painting too, and um, and then from a client standpoint, it's not like you're just hiring shine windows to stay in your deck. You're getting specialized teams who know what they're doing, who can actually guarantee a result, um, and a guaranteed process. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the service side of it, right? You don't have to have this, this question mark in your head of, oh my God, are they going to do a good job? Am I going to waste my money? It's a lifetime guarantee. It'll never peel. It's, uh, My philosophy is that 50% of our job is doing a good job, and the other 50% is making sure that you had a good experience while we did the job. And I think that's what a lot of people miss. Um, And through doing a lot of renovations on my house, I can tell you that there's very, very few contractors that I would call again to do the same service now. How
1: did you first find those contractors though? when you were looking for somebody? You must have did your homework and tried to find reputable. Yeah, but you can, you know, you only... Can do so much,
0: right? Like you go on HomeStars or Google, you meet three guys. You go, I have a good feeling about this one. Oh, he came referred by a client or something. But then you hire them and you find out, you know, the client standards weren't as high as yours. And uh, oh, this guy doesn't really, you know, believe in keeping his word. And it's tough because I, my wife and I were not, we're not like the average person. We're very. Like very detailed people, like we like things a certain way. We like it to look good. We like it to be done properly. And most people either don't know enough to ask questions to make sure it's being done that way. Um, And so, a lot of trades, I feel they come in and they they just want to like come and do the job and leave, and they don't want to be bothered. They don't want. So I, I'm in a fortunate position because I see both sides of the coin. I'm on the client side often, but I'm also on the the trade side of it too. And who I am as a person is like, I just want to hire you and let you do your thing and walk away.
1: Yeah. As long as the details are explained and everyone's on the same page, then it's great. It's when you get clients that want to deviate from that plan. That's it. Yeah. That's when it starts to create some friction. I
0: have ironclad contracts. Not in the sense that it protects me so much as it is like, I'm so detailed in what I write is going to happen that the client like there's no question marks. Like anytime a client's ever had an issue, I add it to my detail. So I'll be like, this is how much we're going to sand it. This is how we're going to apply it. This is what it's going to look like. If I think it'll turn darker than their hopes, I'll write might be darker. So there's, there's no surprises, right? Yeah. But often, you know, you, I guess I'm doing a very straightforward trade, but when you're working with plumbers, electricians, or sometimes you get someone who you know doesn't put something in super straight and it's like how do I tell you I can't just tell you that you're not you're just not the right person if that's not what if you're not doing it right yeah um and so I found that I don't I hate getting into those conversations with people like I don't want to tell someone how to do their job and if they're not able to do it right on their own then they're not the right person and I just need to eject and call it a day and find someone who yeah and
1: move on at that point what do yeah. you prefer windows or decks they're both you've driven the companies yeah. to both be primarily service driven customer yeah. service driven right yeah but which one do you prefer from a business standpoint i like windows because it seems like there's less headaches with windows
0: yeah it's it's you can build on it but uh decks are amazing because it gets us through the slower season um they're, they're, it's a much bigger ticket item, so it can drive revenue
1: as well. You don't get as much repeat.
0: No, but hopefully, you know, we just started this a few years ago. So the we're starting to see the trickle down of people we did two years ago who are now like, hey, I need another coat on my deck. Yeah. And the nice thing is when you do it properly, the best clients are the ones who have been burned in the past by other people because they know... They don't want to go anywhere else. They're yeah. like, "You're my guy for once the deck." Once they find you do it.
1: it, once they once you educate the client that you yeah. could reapply the oil, and you yeah. could even do it annually, and yeah. it'll still keep up that color, and it'll keep up the yeah. wood, and then they'll be happy about it. That's These are it. clients that are diehard wood people, right? So, I mean, it's I would say a lot fewer are diehard wood people,
0: and a lot more are people who like probably half my clients have been burned by another contractor before with their deck in the sense that they paid him, you know two thirds or half of what they paid us. The guy put like I just did a job. It was probably almost 20 grand staining. And it How was big of a deck, massive, okay. massive cedar deck, uh, like long, longer than the length of that, probably the same length of the house. Okay. Um, entire backyard is cedar and uh house is probably like $5 million easy. And, uh, the builder had put in a cedar deck And hired some painters who didn't specialize in stain. And they put on like a clear coat of something. Clear coats always look great the day you do it. And the whole thing peeled off within two years. And so he calls me. He says, what, can you fix this? I said, look, if you called me and this was a new deck, it would be half the price. But because I have to rip off everything that, you know, they did, that's, that's like an extra like eight or nine grand of just like stripping, um, like over easily over a hundred hours of just sanding. And so we had to strip the whole thing off. And now, you know, we put the oil on and it's they're repeatable. Happy. But but they get it now because yeah. they've seen what the alternative is. And they, they know that most people don't operate like that. And they don't want to ever risk hiring someone else to save 500 bucks. And then they're going to have to, you know, now it's a lot cheaper to do it because you're just reapplying. Yeah. Right. Once you set
1: it up, once you educate yeah. them and get them on that path. That's what I yeah. meant about the diehard wood people. They understand the steps that are involved. right? Exactly. And then there's plenty of products out there that are great at marketing themselves, whether they're attached to a big box or whatever it is, yeah. um, that say they will do what they're going to do, but they don't do that. And guys like yeah. John know what exactly you need to do, right? Yeah. Q-Tech was a, a game changer in the whole industry. Anybody yeah. who's not using it is behind. That's all it is. Yeah,
0: I would say any... I tell clients, like, if you're... Hiring another person to stain your deck. Um, if they're using a product that's at a, from a big box store, it's going to peel. Yeah. Whether it says it or not. Yeah. And that's just, that's the industry right now. So that's that's been a really, it's, it's an interesting kind of um, flywheel we have because we'll get people in the fall who are just hiring us for a $300 gutter job. And then all of a sudden in the summer, they want to, you know, restain all the wood in their backyard. And so it's a great like lead generator because they work with us they like us they see everything was smooth and then now they trust us enough to bring bring us in for other jobs
1: can you walk us through your cold call like when you're door knocking somebody and you're like you're selling something that they don't want right off the bat you know that right um they want to be convinced or they yeah well my philosophy
0: with door knocking is well anything in sales is you got three types of people you've got um you know, people that are like motivated buyers, they're ready to go. They're just waiting for you to like hand them what they need and then they'll pay you. Yep. You've got people in the middle who know they kind of need it at some point, but they're not in any rush. So if you persuade, they can be persuaded, but they're not necessarily like running for it. And then you've got people that are just coming to like, look at the Ferrari, but they don't have any intent to buy a Ferrari. So what I tell my guys is that you're, you're not, you're not in the typical door to door sales. Like, uh, you're selling Rogers or belt. You're not trying to close everyone. You're only trying to close the people that are closable, who we can actually help. And because this is a home service, there are thousands of people that need what we have. We just have to, you know, get over the time wasters and the people that don't need anything to get to the potential clients. Yeah. And so that makes it a lot easier for them to digest because instead of being afraid of rejection, and, and feeling like they're failing every time someone says no. Which is going, natural. He wasn't interested. He wasn't interested. And the moment someone shows they're not interested, I'm like, okay, thanks, bye. And we move on. But then you get that one person who's like, yeah, you know, I actually uh, actually do need to have my gutters clean. They weren't done last fall. And that's when you start to, you know, go into your spiel and and eventually uh, get the lead and set up an appointment and, and book the job. Hopefully. And then you're
1: educating all these these kids that were you at that time the same way to understand, to to kind of figure out these little human ticks that people do that will signal whether they are or they aren't, right?
0: That's it. And for me, it's like, you know, I just want to help people and do great work. And if I can do that, then, like, the money will come. It's not a – it's, you know, if you chase the money, you often make, like, very short-term decisions that don't work out in the long run. But – If you're just trying to do the right thing and develop a name and be good to people, then in the long run you end up winning. You built the culture first, but you took
1: it from what you learned in Montreal, right? Yeah. Like I
0: think, I think culture is, culture is really like an extension of the owner. And then once you grow past a certain point, which we're just about starting to now at like 40 people, I'm so I'm becoming more distanced from the day to day of the business. Um, that now the culture is almost just like there's a manual for it you can just like uh no it's it's like it's it's birthing itself yeah um if you don't keep an eye on it then it'll just happen meaning when it's just me and five people it's easy for me to influence everything that happens but when there's 45 people in the business now all of a sudden there's you know so many workers if you hire the wrong people who have toxic mindsets all of a sudden they're going to outnumber the rest of the company and now that's your culture. Yeah. And so we got it. We're starting to be a lot more careful about the types of people we hire and, you know, not so much about whether or not you're
1: good, but like, do you think like us? You fit in. Exactly. Are you still going to the schools? No, no. So were you getting all the people now where you f- uh, indeed, indeed, all indeed, just indeed. Right. Yeah. So you're putting the call out there and then they're indeed and referrals from other
0: workers. I give them a bonus for if they refer a friend. Um, But yeah, purely indeed. Because I'm not hiring business owners now. I'm I'm just hiring. You're hiring your teams. Yeah. And then I start them at the bottom. And then if they're good, then I move them up. um, And I give them more responsibility. And right now we're kind of like, we're on a, a rocket ship basically that's taking off. We're scaling, growing so quickly that I need to fill roles. I just need the right people to fill that role. And I won't fill it until I have the right person. And so, anyone who's working with us now is kind of at that ground level to prove themselves. Whereas in ten years from now, I'm uh, no one's going to start day one and door knocking, and next year be running a sales team. No, right? Um, but that's that's what's happening at this point.
1: So, what's your plan now? Like, are you? I guess, does it make sense to go franchise? Like, go no. across Canada?
0: I uh, I know a lot of people in franchising. Um, and just from like the student painting side, I realized that it's not the route I want to go. I think, I think franchising makes sense if you're trying to be like first to market. Um, my buddy Mike from uh, can- Canadian Barbecue Boys is franchising. And the problem is it's very hard to control when you franchise because you're going global, right? You, you're not next to the people. So it's hard to, to have those systems in place. Yeah.
1: Um, what does Canadian Barbecue Boys do? What are they-, they clean barbecues. Yeah,
0: they'll come to your house and, you know, you have an outdoor kitchen and they'll scrub your barbecue down, clean all the grease, the rust. Um, And so I think that it makes sense if you want to be first to market because you're doing something most people aren't doing. Yeah. Um, I think it makes sense if you have a really like perfect model that, you know, you can just roll out and scale. Um, But I think in the trades, most of the time when you hear people talking about franchising, it's an ego play because they want to say that
1: they're, you know, all over the world now, or... But there's only certain trades that you can franchise, and a lot of it has to do with the trades that are serviceable. Yeah. So you get into the plumbing and electrical and HVAC kind of trades. a lot harder. Uh, Yeah, it's a lot harder at that point. Plus, there's a lot of competition, because a lot of the businesses that are doing those trades, they're already offering those services, right? So when they get a client, they're doing the work, they're already letting them know, by the way here's your HVAC rules on servicing. This is what you should consider seasonally. This is what you should do. Call us back and we'll take care of this. We'll prep this. We'll clean this and basically extend the life of all the brand new equipment that we just put into your home, right? So you can do that and I think there's too much competition. I don't think it would work if a new player comes in just offering the service, right? Also,
0: you need to to do uh, an HVAC, like you need to be certified, right?
1: Yeah, you you have to have your tickets, right? And
0: franchising, like the reason people buy franchises, they just want to pay money and, and roll out yeah. They don't want to spend 10 years or five years in school and apprenticing and learning. Um, and so, yeah, I think either most of the time that I've seen it, it's usually not a really smart strategic play. It's typically an ego thing, or they're tired of running their business yep. and they think that this will like, now they're like, oh, I'll just sell it to other people and they can take care of the problems. Um, but the problem with franchising is, you are no longer in the business of service. You're now in the business of selling franchises and, and running other businesses.
1: Which is a different model.
0: And I think that like from where I stand now, I know that our found our, like foundation of our business is nowhere near strong enough to franchise yet. But at the same time, I think that from what I've seen in the market, it's better than anything anyone else is doing out there. And some of them are franchised, but I just don't internally feel that I would be doing the right thing by turning it into a franchise because I know that the moment I hit that button, I lose 20% of any quality that I want to control because now there's all these other people involved. I know that it's way harder to systemize. Everything is is go, go, go. And when you want to scale back and change systems, now you have all these other business owners that have opinions that you need to think about. And I've also done the model in terms of like financials and I've realized that it's way more profitable and i think better for everyone including clients to just keep it like greenfield and organic and own the whole pie um and just build that out small like slowly but surely
1: but even if an time. investor comes along and knocks on the door and just says i want to take this goal i want to just take yeah it away they you. have but i'm sure but the problem is is Techno metal post screw piles are installed by our trained certified professionals using specially designed hydraulic machines. The piles are augered in until they reach a specified torque and depth, allowing our installers to determine the load bearing capacity for the structure. Helical pile foundations are made from hollow structural steel HHS that is compliant with ASTM A500 grade C. They are designed, tested, fabricated, and installed in compliance with Canadian, European, and U.S. building codes. When compared to bolted coupling in similar products, TMP's fully welded couplings ranked above the others and provided maximum strength, rigidity, and enhanced buckling resistance. Different shaft and helical blade sizes are available to accommodate the needs of structural support and site soil conditions. Our engineering department provides assistance to determine the appropriate sizes for specified project types. Reach out to them at www.technometalpost.com for your next project. It doesn't make sense because I, for me, um, the business would
0: run without me. Um, when my dad was...
1: You've grown the business to do that though.
0: But I did that, I started it with that in mind. Yeah. So my dad was a was a slave to his business for his whole life. He would, uh, like, that's where I got my work ethic from. He would, he'd be working every day, every night. Um, and I and I saw how much of a toll it took on him. And so when I started this from day one, I said, within three years, I want to, the business to be self-reliant. I don't want to have to be, um, if, if, if I die, the business can keep running. Yeah. And so- I'm I I love business. I love I'm like I read books about business. I'm passionate about business. I could talk business all day. It's just it gets me excited. What businesses, what makes them tick, what makes them work, how they grow, how they don't grow. And so what happened here was I built it that way and when you try to sell a business, most people overvalue what they think they're going to get for it. Yep. And typically what happens is even if you're at a point where you're not running the whole business yourself and you're the operator, even when it's all self-sustained in the trades, you're probably getting like below 10 million. You're getting a like a two to three X multiple um, on your profit when you sell. And in my mind, if my business is self-reliant, why the hell would I sell it for two or three years of profit when I could just go live in Hawaii and let the business run for three run years and then run for another 40 years? where you really make money on exits in the trades is when you're beyond 20 million in profit, 10, 20 million in profit. And that's when private equity starts thinking, okay, maybe we give them a five or six multiple. And then you're going, all right, now I can take this money and invest it, go do something else with it. It becomes more attractive. Um, But yeah, I, I'm building it with a sell in mind because I know that the numbers and metrics and things they look for are so important to make a business healthy. But I have no intent or, you know, foreseeable Until that happens, selling, right? It, it just, it know. also
1: feels like White Shark has just been on cruise control. They didn't, re- they missed so many opportunities that yeah. you saw when you started building yours that they might be copying you now, right? To try to figure I out. I mean,
0: they're not because like the owner, he's, he's probably making more money from the, from his investments that he's made over the last 30 years than he is from his business. Like this is a hobby for him at this point. He's just letting it run and keep yeah. it busy. Um. For me, yeah, I just I don't I haven't seen anyone that I think is capable or has the, the bandwidth to copy what we're doing, and I don't want to say that like arrogantly like I think someone could I think if another me showed up someone could do it yeah. But I think that the established guys are you know they're ready to retire they don't want to take on the headache of restructuring their whole
1: organization to do this, um, but there's market share there too. You can't be old if you're not a, yeah. looking to expand it to that point. Well, we are here so like i would yeah, that's what i mean it's like yeah. someone could take this model and go to hamilton yeah for sure. like we've seen construction explode in yeah. the west side right yeah. and yeah. same you can go to the east side as well too yeah. and you can even go further north than vaughan yeah. right which are all new communities that are growing really fast, yeah. right so if you're not there then somebody else can actually yep. do that right? 100 percent. so it's either they started there or you get in there somehow that's it. to do that right my philosophy is that i could spend the next 20 years in toronto
0: and and just like add services, do other things. And we could grow, you know, bigger than most companies that are, you know, in 10 cities, because I think people undervalue what a densely populated high income city can bring to a trade. I think people think they've like tapped their market and they go outside too quickly. Um, And right now we probably have like uh, at least like 5,000 customers and, we're just in toronto and while we are one of the biggest companies in the city if you look at a map with pins of all of our clients we're almost like we haven't even touched the surface no because they got all more clients like people who know windows they know us yeah but but 98 percent of the city has never worked with us doesn't clean their windows they don't know anything so there's so much room to grow here that i'm not really worried about anywhere else
1: Dan, would it have worked in Montreal if you started? Yeah, it for would sure. have worked there. Would it grown yeah. as quickly as it did grow in Toronto?
0: I think maybe I'd be like a year behind revenue wise, just because it would have taken more time to do all the translations and headaches. I think there's more laws that work against the trades in Quebec, and I think that there's a little less money there. But um, you know, would you guys I, still I, be
1: part of the CCQ?
0: Uh, CCQ, you only need if you're doing commercial work. Okay, and we strictly do residential. Um, but it is, it is challenging because, you know, then there's certain safety regulations that don't apply to window cleaners there, but it's a gray area. And so the safety regulators there will just like throw a fine at you and basically tell you either pay it or we'll shut you down. And you, you just got to, it's like a cost of business. It's yeah, almost of like, course. Yeah. You know, it's just a cash grab. At it's the end of called the corruption. Uh, <laughs> it's basically
1: yeah. what it yeah. is, right? And I guess there's a little bit more freedom here, but you, I mean, there's certain rules that you guys are abiding by when it comes to ladders and for sure that, right? Yeah. So we
0: take that super sa- seriously. Like I, um, a couple of years ago, I had a buddy who showed me, um, these orange legs that extend that you can replace your ladder feet with. I don't know if you've ever seen them. So these two metal poles on a ball joint, and the bottom is like a rubber circle, circular foot. Okay. And I so this. basically you unscrew your ladder feet and then you drill holes in and you install these these legs. They're your new legs. And so what happens is you can adjust them at different heights. So if you're on a driveway. Terrain, okay. Exactly. Um, they're rubber and like solid and they're on ball joints. So, I mean, it's like a classic contractor move to be somewhere where your ladder is not stable and you go and you grab a rock and you put it under. So this pretty much eliminated that completely. Now, the things are like two hundred dollars a ladder, and if you have fifty ladders, it starts to add up yeah um but it's so worth it because when the guys feel safe and you know their security, um, even if you mitigate one fall in a lifetime it's it pays for itself, right? So
1: how did that company get around the fact of drilling into a engineered ladder because the moment you damage or you do anything modification wise to a ladder
0: it says it's certified with the so they
1: take the responsibility
0: it seems so yeah i mean at the end of the day it's like i have a little bit of trouble with safety guidelines because some of the guidelines are actually more dangerous if you follow them to the t so for example like you know no gutter cleaner in the world you'll find harnessed in on a you know, two-story house. But technically, regulation says beyond 10 feet, you have to be strapped into a harness.
1: Okay, so, yeah, where do you pick? So, like, you, where, you mean, like, what do you do in that wh- case? Wh- no, where do you uh, actually uh, connect the, the harness to? Well, that's it. You got to get on the roof, what? And put a D-ring in there and just exactly. connect? It. Like, that's just ridiculous. Right. So you don't do Exa- that. Well,
0: it's more dangerous, right? Yeah. Because you're going, so either you can climb up the ladder and you can, like, scrub the window on your way up and then just go down and leave or you can climb up the ladder look at the window ignore it walk up onto the roof with no harness drill in come down clean the window go up uninstall your heart it doesn't make sense right and so- technically
1: could according to the regulations there are points where you are not tied in because you can't be tied in because you're either tying in or tying out. Exactly. So it's like, where do you, and this is the that's problem it. that I have with the MOL, which would yeah. be great to have them on the show one day so yeah. I can start asking them direct questions about <laughs> that shit. But they won't have an answer. That's the sad thing. So if you don't yeah. have an answer, then it shouldn't be a regulation, right? So you should yeah. get rid of the lawyers when they're writing these things and you should yeah. get the tradespeople contributing to writing these things. And that's
0: kind of how I feel about the feet. It's like, whether it is or isn't part of the guidelines to me, Like, I don't even need to look into it because I know at the end of the day, in a worst-case scenario, they tell me it's not allowed in the guidelines, and I'm going to go, I would much rather get fined for something than know that I'm actually putting my workers more at risk. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, you know, fuck that. Like, I'm just going to do what I know is safer, and then we can have confidence that we're doing right by our guys, and if we get hit with a fine at some point, then it is what it is, right?
1: So when are you, when's the official day that you close out, like, seasonally speaking so you're you're yeah you're closed right now or you know no, you're still we're going, working we're going now we, we temperature stopped. wise you're still good for staining yeah we've
0: got a really no staining we stop in on halloween okay roughly and then now we finish up gutter season because everybody's desperate to have their gutters done yeah because they've all um, filled up <laughs> yeah so we stop mid-december um so we're about a week out from finishing and uh and then we take a few weeks off and come back, back in January. At it in January and and it's just door running. knocking, that's it. Yeah. Well,
1: digital door knocking. Uh and physical. Yeah. Still physical, eh? yeah.
0: well the winter we drive like a third of our sales annually come from winter. So that's probably 15% of our annual sales come from just door knocking in the winter, um which is great cuz yeah. rather than sitting and doing nothing, you're you're driving revenue and um in, and then we call all of our past clients, we send out emails. I use the winter to kind of build our infrastructure on our tech stack and all of our, you know, back-end stuff. Um, we're a very software-driven business, so that's allowed us to, I think, scale a lot faster and larger than most others who are not doing the same thing.
1: What are you doing with the clients at either window cleaning or deck staining, it's already gone far too far. Like the window is already damaged is rot. The deck is already damaged is a rot. Yeah. So like, if
0: there's minor rot, like I have a handyman that I I love and uh, I just refer him to any client that needs a couple boards replaced and I'll okay. say like, call this guy. He'll actually show up on time. He'll do the job well and and that way we can come in and do our thing. Um, if the deck is all entirely destroyed, then... You know, I just kind of opt out. And if I I know a couple guys that build decks, I might refer one or two. But I'm very reluctant to refer people because then my name gets thrown yeah, in. You don't know how it's going to turn out. That's it. And, and uh, their
1: schedule and whatever, right? Yeah.
0: And so I know a guy who, like, replaces glass panes of someone. But for the most part, we just, on Windows, it's easy. We just tell them, like, hey, this window is faulty. Like, we can clean it. But we'll just focus on the rest of your house. And they're like, yeah, it is what it is.
1: you got any secrets you want to share about cleaning windows it's pretty straightforward
0: yeah it's very straightforward i would just say like um it's funny because in in the states especially but in canada too um everybody loves this thing called the water fed pole. it's like a tank that you run water through um and it filters the water so there's no minerals in it and you can just clean a window from the ground without climbing a ladder you just scrub it down okay um they're expensive they're like minimum three grand for one of these machines. Only one person, I guess two. Yeah. If you, if you spend 5k, you can get a two person machine. Um, but in typical like window cleaning industry, this is all that's used. Now in Toronto, you have houses that are close together. So you can't just like wheel this pole out of the, out of the car. You got to take your whole machine out of the car. You got to bring it onto the lawn. Cause sometimes you're parked a block away. Um, And when you're starting, you don't have the money to invest in this. So when I started, everything has been traditionally done. So in the sense that we're using like doing everything by hand, which was a good thing because it allowed me to like get really up close and personal with the windows that most companies didn't do a good job on because they were just spraying it with a hose from the ground. Um, And we kind of built our name as being the guys that would do the job that most people didn't know how to do or didn't want to do. Yeah um now this year i said i think it's time for us to invest in this setup because we do some pretty crazy houses that would be nice to just have a pole that we could rinse um and so i've started to like roll that out slowly but i just want to make sure like the systems and the quality are perfected before we do that
1: this show is brought to you by Payne's window manufacturing window shopping revolutionized seeking top tier windows look no further Payne's window manufacturing is the ultimate choice for custom builders contractors and homeowners visit www.pains.com now to experience the pinnacle of quality and customization get your instant custom quote today elevate excellence with us plus enjoy nationwide shipping across canada and the u.s um
0: but yeah i think in terms of just secrets like I would say just get her done, you know, do it, do it's it just, properly. It's just
1: work. That's all it is. Simple as that.
0: It's, it's it's really just about wanting to like wanting to serve the, the, the highest maintenance client, because if you can handle the most intense client, then all of a sudden you've perfected your craft for everyone. A lot of people resent the clients that are picky and I love them because I know that once I do a good job for you, you'll never go anywhere else because you know that you're picky and it's, it's there's no point but at the same time you've also built up my business because now that i've created all these systems to handle you i'll never have any problems with anyone else
1: because yeah, you handle everybody at that exactly. point right so you it's actually a great way to look at it but you, you're never on site in you're like you don't
0: i'm on site a lot oh
1: not, yeah you pass I'm, by and take a look at work that's has yeah, done yeah, yeah. like i'm
0: i'm still uh i'm still on like job site trainings couple couple weeks here and there not at starbucks
1: though what? Not at Starbucks. No, 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 no. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I'm, I'm less, I'm more of like, I, I like to parachute in. So if, if, you know, we're forecasting how much we need to produce this month that we say, Hey, we've got X, you know, a few hundred jobs, but we've only got the capacity to produce 200 less. We need to start another team. Uh, the managers are already training new teams. I might hop in and, and train a third team. Um, but and then I'll do, I'll do like the bigger jobs in terms of like sales. If someone's doing a twenty thirty dollars 30000 project, I'll usually be the one to go and basically sell it because I don't, I want to make sure expectations are really clear yep. and instructions are all there. Um, and then anytime there's something a little more like complex, if it's like a custom home or the client needs that relationship, some houses we do are pretty affluent people, you know, you know how it is, yep. um. So in those cases, I'll just kind of oversee, but I'm very fortunate now that I can trust my guys for the most part that I have someone I can like send to oversee and I don't usually have to be there.
1: you getting clients asking you about, um, I don't know if you could do this, but treating PT. Yeah. Treated? Yeah. We do it all the time. You do it it's all the time. Our jobs. Really? Yeah. Eh? yeah. got a product for PT exclusively? Or Everything.
0: Yeah. You can do anything on PT. It's just like Cedar. It just, uh, it doesn't look as nice.
1: No. And but there's have, isn't there a certain period with pressure-treated wood that it has to wear itself, if you're wear not, out the manufacturer's yeah. coating, right? If
0: you're not using synthetic oils and you're going with uh, film-forming stains that sit on the surface, you have to wait a year. Okay. But if you're using oil, wood-penetrating oils, then you don't need to let it sit at all because it just soaks in and the wood can still, you know, breathe out. Okay. Um, but yeah, you PT, I would say, needs almost like more care than cedar because although it technically lasts forever, it looks way worse when you let it wear yeah. and it gets all green. Yeah. Um, so yeah, PT, the, the, the typical like client story that I get when people call us is um, they go, hey, I've got a deck that's three years old. Come look at it. And I come look at it and they go, yeah, so we just built this thing a couple of years ago. Our contractor told us not to stain it um, because it would create all this maintenance. And here we are. It looked great for two years. Now it looks horrible. Um, what should we do? And I'm like, well, you should have stained it. And they go, but he told us not to. And I go, yeah, because he's a builder. He's not a painter. He doesn't stain. He doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. And I would say like 90% of times I go to fix a botch job. The guy who was there before me, the story is he was either a really great builder or a really great painter. They've worked with him already. They trusted him. And then they asked him to stain the deck. He said, sure, I can stain the deck. He stained it. It peeled a year later because he wasn't a stain specialist. And then now they pay me two or three times what it should otherwise cost because I have to strip you it all. You have to off. prep. That's yeah. all it is. Exactly. Right?
1: But it's just education at that point, right? So with any client, it's just educating them. Going back to your model yeah. that you first perfected, which was customer satisfaction, and just educating the client. Yeah, on and the process.
0: It, it's it's educating and it's taking responsibility. You know, like if if something messes up, then the client doesn't know anything. Like it, it's on you. How are you going to tell a client? it's not my fault it's the product they're gonna go but but i hired you i don't know anything about stain so that's i think the problem with a lot of just businesses in general just because something's not your fault it doesn't mean it's not your problem because at the end of the day even if it's not your fault the client still doesn't like you anymore and they're still not going to refer you or use you again yeah so it's just a question of what are you going to do about it so that that doesn't occur right
1: are you offering um gutter cover protection yeah so you clean it all out, get it all done, yeah. and then you're offering the surface of adding that later on, Yeah, right?
0: that's a very uh, gutter guards I would say are like one of the most controversial things in the industry. Why? Um the internet likes to sh- like hate on them. Anytime you say anything about gutter guards, it's a very divisive topic because in theory, they're supposed to mean you never have to clean your gutters again. Uh, that's not true. Right. <laughs> but it's a it's an you have to ask a lot of questions. So, firstly, there's different kinds of gutter guards. Most of the ones you find at the hardware stores are garbage. Yes, um, and they they mean when people have those, it takes us longer to clean the gutters, and it's a, I just throw them out. Um, there are the the better kinds of gutter guards that exist um, that you can permanently install that don't fall out that work really well, assuming you don't have like a tree that's hanging right on top of it that just piles up mountains. So in most cases, gutter guards are a really, really great solution and you can prevent uh, needing cleaning for multiple years in a row. Now, whether that's five years or 10 years or 20 years depends on your trees, Um, but they're great. Right now, the kind of the, the qualm I have with the industry is that there's uh, like the good gutter guards and then the top, like highest quality gutter guard, um, is a company in the States that basically just patented their own technology where they've got, um, it's like a, a few layers of mesh that they've put on it. Okay. And, um, and what they've done is they have the product and they manufacture it and they just, I guess, license it out to, to, to installers. So I called them, I said, Hey, you know, your gutter guards look great. Um, can I buy them? Cause I want to install them for clients. They go, uh, we can sell them to you. As part of like the job, but the client is technically hiring us. And I was like, what do you mean? And they go, well, if someone wants these gutter guards, they got to pay us and then we'll pay, we'll sub it to you, the labor. And I did the math and I was like, how much are you going to give me? And they're like, well, we'll give you like 400 bucks for this much work. And I said, so you're going to pay me like 30 bucks an hour, 40 bucks an hour to install what I know you're charging like $8,000 for. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, that's what it is. And I go, OK, so just because you have a trademark product that's proprietary, you're just grossly um, inflating the price because, you know, no one else is going to supply it. So I have some clients that use that service, but anyone who's getting a quote from me, I just tell them like there's this thing. If you want the best of the best, it's 10 percent more um, in terms of like quality, but it's actually three times the price. So I think you're wasting. your time. So what's
1: the gutter guard that you're using? um so we
0: typically go with because uh, i don't
1: like that model because cambria stone does the exact same thing mm. and i can't stand any of cambria stone products because <laughs> yeah. you have to use their fabricator their installers yeah. which makes yeah. no sense because it goes back to your own business model yeah. where it's like i trust the people that i've worked with and i i want them to do yeah. it but cambria doesn't let you do that yep. right so cambria is an american company is the mm-hmm. same bs right
0: that's it. At the end of the day, they, they've they cornered the market in terms of just like pumping money through ads and uh, and like getting lead gen. It's a whole other... Business. They're not in the trade business. They're no. in the product business. And they came
1: up with a widget. Exactly. That's all it is. Is exactly yeah. it. Um,
0: but, but you yeah, use uh, what? What do you... We, we typically... I, there's a few ones. The ones I like to use are the K-Can ones, the ProGuard. I know what you're and the, the key with gutter guards, like the most important thing is that you're able to like drill them in because the clip-ons never last. No, you need a um, The holes need to be small enough that they can let water through, but not big enough that like all kinds of debris is going to get stuck in them. Um, and I would say like, that's typically the main criteria. And like, I'll be honest with someone, if I see their house and they have like a hundred needle trees that are hanging right over the gutter, I'm like, you're still gonna need to clean them. So,
1: it's And also, people to need to understand that just the granules from asphalt shingles yeah. will get through those holes and yeah. start to build up a little dam, yeah, which will cause problems. So, you still need yeah. to clean them. You still need to remove
0: them. Well, the thing is, the asphalt actually isn't really a problem
1: after a year or two of the new roof. If the yeah. roof is. See, it's kind of, it's also yeah. both ends of the spectrum. Once the asphalt shingles start getting to the then end, you gotta of, replace the roof. Yeah, yeah, because now it starts losing a lot yeah. more of it, and then you'll start noticing that. They'll build up in the cutters, right? And especially if the eavesdrops wasn't installed properly, where there is a slight bow or whatever, then it starts to build up. So I just like, it's good that you're telling your clients that these will help you on the amount of times that we have to clean these, um, but it's not a foolproof.
0: I tell them every couple of years when I'm cleaning your windows or whatever, ask them to take a look. We'll look at them. If it's, you know, sometimes it's just one section and you just need to unscrew it and do it. Other times you know you don't have anything nearby and it's fine because the thing people don't realize is like you might not have a lot of trees but if you have enough like with one fistful of leaves that could clog your gutter yep so some people are paying you know 300 bucks twice a year to clean their gutters just for that one little baseball when if they had gutter guards like they would do it once every 10 years
1: And you know, to all your homeowners that are listening um gutter guard the whole house, not just the side where yes. there's a tree, yeah, because there's this thing that's called wind yeah. that will <laughs> blow everything around yeah. and go into the gutters that are not covered, right? Yeah. yeah. So it just makes sense. At that point, you're already ha- having someone, you're already there doing the cleaning. Put the guard on all that's of it, right? And yeah. simple as that, right? Hundred percent. So.
0: No, that's we we get a lot of people who have like guards on one part of their house, and then we just tell them like the biggest cost is getting us here. If we're yeah. already coming, how did that why whole side fill up?
1: Well, yeah that's win. exactly it. that's all yeah. it is man um we, i got to do the 12 questions with you sure. but dan yeah. i don't know I think, man it's amazing i'm impressed that you got such Thank a you you, you, you kind of went in i like seeing guys like that right? girls that come into the business and go yeah here there's opportunity here man there's totally opportunity here right yeah so it's only going to grow at this point
0: i mean i think at the end of the day like my my dream my ultimate vision is really to create uh an entity where a homeowner can come and basically get a guaranteed amazing quality repeatable service for whatever they need. So there are things that we won't do and we won't go into, but uh, in the long run, like opportunities I see are Christmas lights and you know wrapping furniture for the winter with those like vacuum seal wraps, if ever you've seen them. Yep. Um, so things like that, things that people need on a consistent basis and they don't want to go and hire seven different companies and we know their house and they know us um and i think you know whoever can figure that out is easily on to a hundred million dollar business because the the hardest part is getting started but you know it's actually easier to run the business
1: once it gets bigger once it gets started it's funny as a kid i never understood the idea of hiring somebody to put christmas lights up but now as i'm (laughs) older i'm like it makes a hundred percent sense yeah plus you get some creative people that will actually do some really good work and it's just not not like a line of lights right yeah which is really good but yeah uh dan's here from shine windows and deck people uh, shinewindows.ca the deck 416-949-3874 info at shinewindows.ca and on ig it's the deck people toronto and shine windows cleaners and then on facebook as well you'll find them both names and then on tiktok the deck people and then on the youtube channel the deck people ready for this yep what is your favorite construction word my
0: favorite construction
1: word. Uh, was that on the questions you sent. No, I modified them recently. Okay, Just nice. keep everybody on the tools, <laughs> right? So yeah, favorite um, construction word.
0: My favorite construction word is, I would say, probably, I'm going to steal from the other questions that you sent me. So I would say wet saw, because I feel like nowhere near enough people use a wet saw, and it causes dust to go on every single neighbor's house mm-hmm. and it's so easy to just or plug, plug a hose, a hose in into
1: it. a quick saw all kinds of shit yeah. like that, I know yeah. uh least favorite tool
0: least favorite tool um there you go I stole it from the from the wet saw thing but <laughs> 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 um yeah, I would say I hate using the, the tamping machine that you use to Jumper, uh, a jumper, jumping yeah, jack, whatever. For polymeric sand. It's just so heavy and clunky. Yeah. Uh
1: what construction sound do you love?
0: I would say I like the sound of the of my water fed pole when it starts trickling water. Cause I know I'm not going to have to hop off on a ladder and I can do everything from the ground. I know, but
1: the sound of, um, collapsing a ladder and having the (laughs) kind of sounds nice as long as you don't have your hands in the way.
0: Yeah. But then, you know, you have to climb it and you have to sit on top of it. And
1: what's your favorite beverage?
0: Um, my favorite beverage is, uh, mango juice, but it's got way too much sugar. So I usually opt for a diet Coke. (laughs) (laughs)
1: What turns you on or in what turns you on and off about construction?
0: Um, I love that it's, it's just so archaic and ripe for innovation. I think that it's, it's, people are starting to realize that the blue collar industry is where you can make a lot of money and you can do a lot of good and build a lot of really awesome businesses. And Mm -hmm. I think it's just a really easy entry point for anyone who's not sure what they want to do.
1: What don't you like?
0: I don't like, I guess, the opposite end of the spectrum that I love about it, which is that because it's so easy and because most people are very short sighted and they they just want to, you know, work for themselves. They, especially in cities like Toronto, they can afford to do a really bad job. Get away with it. You know, they don't even need a Google page. They'll, They'll keep getting jobs and they'll go on forever just letting people down. And there's not really a way to hold them accountable.
1: What's your favorite curse word?
0: probably the the phrase let's fucking go that's that's basically become our company phrase <laughs> let's fucking go yeah.
1: yeah what is your favorite vehicle in the entire world any kind of motor transportation
0: i love sea doos. there's something about just blasting through the water with nothing that you can hit um but i honestly most of the time yeah i exactly <laughs> i um but i used to have a, a subaru wrx and uh, no matter how many fancy or nicer cars I drive, I always I miss that. It was like a go kart.
1: What do you miss from your childhood?
0: Probably ignorance, just not uh, not not think, not knowing what I what I know now, and not having to care about anything.
1: What profession other than your own would you like to attempt one day?
0: Profession other than my own, I would say probably public speaking. I like to go be like a motivational speaker, something like that. I could see that.
1: What profession don't, you don't want to do?
0: Every. Oh my God. Anything that is what? like corporate and wants me to just like stay in my lane
1: and do the same thing every day. Last question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at those pearly gates? Probably that I, I left it better than I found it. Nice. Nice. Dan, pleasure having you on the show, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, man. And that, I'm, I'm sure you. that you enlightened quite a few people that are listening. And I agree with you. A lot of the points, totally about it, right? So construction is definitely something to do. And there's always an opportunity, man. Always an opportunity. So yeah, I'm grateful that you came in, or uh, reached out, and then came in, and then sat down and we had a Yeah, chat.
0: thanks for having me. And if uh, anyone listening wants advice or wants to... Reach out to you. ...connect, then... Yeah. They can find me on uh, on Instagram. My personal one is Dan's Views, um, or they can
1: just go to the page and they'll see a whole bunch of videos of me talking. Connect there, right? But yeah. also, if anybody's looking, or you got clients that are in need of clean windows, eavesdrops, clients, people who want a job, yeah. anything. We're always looking for looking opportunities. for. Every. Okay, That's cool. It. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Appreciate it. Ready, Angelina.